please remain standing as you're able. And it's very likely that Jesus, like the other uh, devout Jews of his day, would have recited the Shema when he woke up in the morning, before he went to bed at night, and as he came before the scripture. So would you follow after me as I try to follow after him? Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're spending four weeks thinking about the issue of loss, and last week we looked at the relationship between uh, perceived loss or victimization and resulting anger. Now today we turn our attention to grief, and the story is uh, from the Old Testament and 1 Samuel 15. Uh, Samuel didn't ever think Israel should have a king, but the people asked for a king. God said, let them have one. And Samuel the prophet anointed Saul. But Saul uh, began to have a series of uh, grievous missteps. And after the third misstep in which he disobeyed uh, Samuel's um, uh, orders and commands and, uh, and played the role of a priest without permission, uh, Samuel came back to him and said, now the Lord has taken the kingdom from your hands and will give it to somebody else. And so they have this parting of the ways, and that's where we pick up the story uh, in, uh, toward the end of chapter 15 in verse 34. So Samuel went back to Ramah, and Saul went to Gibeah of Saul. And as long as uh, he, excuse me, and until the day he died, Samuel did not go to see Saul, but Samuel grieved for him. And the Lord was sorry that he had ever made Saul the king. And then now they pick up the first verse in the next chapter. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill up your horn with oil and be on your way and go to Jesse in Bethlehem, for I have chosen one of his sons to be king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I can say in complete honesty and confidence that this sermon this morning is for you. But I can also tell you in all honesty, it's for me. Because the the message this morning is about loss. And the truth of the matter is every one of us loses at some point in our life. In fact, even winners lose. We all are aware of stories of people that hit the jackpot with the lottery and they ended up, uh, their relationships fell apart or uh, people sued them over their share of the winning ticket or they spent everything uh, they had been given and ended up in a worse place financially than when they started. We know that winners can lose. Every day it seems the sports page is filled with another athlete that has gotten into some sort of trouble in their personal life or legal trouble or financial trouble. Everyone loses. Even the perceived winners lose. And the story this morning is about a loss that came to Samuel. Now, granted, in the story, no one died. As best as we can tell, what Samuel had was a loss of a dream or a hope. And it's hard to say exactly what that dream was for Samuel. Was it a dream that, in fact, he could be wrong and that a king could actually do what God wanted a king to do? And and a king could actually lead the people closer to God? and, And now it didn't happen? Or is it grief that sometimes we experience when we raise someone or we coach someone or we mentor someone and then they choose a direction for their life that is in complete opposition to the values that we tried to instill in them because 
Saul has gone one way, though Samuel had tried to get him to go the other. Who knows exactly, but we are clear from Scripture that Samuel is grieving. He has a loss. And though no one died, it's still a significant loss because all losses are important. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes we debate uh, among ourselves, I suppose, whose who's kind of loss is worse than somebody else's loss. Well, I lost a relative, uh, you just lost a job, I lost a relationship, you lost a long-time pet. But the truth of the matter is, loss is intensely personal. And so the worst kind of grief that exists in the world is your very own grief, whatever it is about. So loss is important. And the fact of the matter is, every loss, by the time you experience it, it's already compounded. Because every loss, uh, we've learned, calls up memories of previous losses. So the loss that, that you're dealing with at the moment is really just the tip of the iceberg. And there's about 80% of the stuff still under there that's called up. And the fact of the matter is every loss is important because how we deal with loss, whether it's in the past or the present, says a great deal about where we will go and how we will fare in the future. And there's an old saying that goes something like this. If we cannot let go when death demands it, we will be unable to hold on when life requires it. There's a sense in which if we don't uh, work through our losses uh, faithfully, uh, that We will struggle when the next loss comes and we'll be even worse off than we were. And so it's important this morning to look at what Samuel did uh, with loss. So I'm going to walk you just through a little bit of the story of Samuel and look at him today. Uh, And the first thing to say is, I hope obvious, but I want you to know this. When Samuel has this perceived loss, Samuel grieves. We're told that he mourned for Saul. I I mean, grieving is normal. In the Bible, it's okay. We're told the Lord was even grieving. He was sorry he'd made Saul king. Another time we're told that God is sorry he'd even made human beings in the days of wickedness when Noah was one of the few righteous ones. So there is that sense that grief is is normal, not just for humans, but even God grieves. Jesus grieves, as best we can tell, at the tomb of Lazarus. It says Jesus wept. Now, we don't know if he's weeping because Lazarus, his friend, has died, if he's weeping for other people's sorrow, or he's weeping because he knows that if he raises Lazarus out of that tomb, which he plans to do, then all the religious leaders will have no choice but to kill him uh, because that will just be too powerful and profound among the people. So we don't know exactly what Jesus is grieving, but we know that he is grieving. And then Paul uh, will write to a church gathered in Thessalonica, and they've been a church long enough that they've started to have some of their members die. And Paul will say this, now I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope, says Paul. Now please look at the whole context. Paul doesn't say don't grieve. He said just don't grieve as those who have no hope. So main thing I want to tell you about this is Samuel grieved and that's okay. It's in the Bible. It's all right to grieve and to be sad over our losses, whether they are of relationships, people, um, or dreams. Whatever it is we've lost It's okay. And you should know that not only is it okay and normal, but it's predictable in some ways. Some years ago, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote what you may have seen, a famous book about five stages of grief. And and there's been a lot of debate ever since. And I think what we do know is that grief will fall apart follow a fairly predictable pattern, but everybody's won't be the same. And that the problem with Kubler-Ross is she seemed to indicate that you'd be in one stage and then all of a sudden there'd be a clean break in a sense and and you'd be on from that stage on to another. And the reality is sometimes the stages don't go in the order she listed. And the reality is sometimes you might be in more than one stage 
at a time, and it might be normal uh, for you. Uh, so wherever you are in grief early on is probably normal and right for you, even if it's in a different place from somebody else. The predictable pattern usually starts with some sort of uh, numbness or shock. I remember some years ago when a colleague died, and, and it was like, Almost impossible for me to get up and go to the office the next morning. It just, it was so overwhelming when that, when that happened. And, and there's always that sense of numbness and shock. And then usually there's some period of, of what we might call denial that you're, you're trying to believe if I'd only done something else, uh, this wouldn't have happened or I can somehow rectify this or, or fix this loss. And we have a hard time believing that it's really occurred and usually that happens. And then at some point, there's an acknowledgement, well, that this happened. And it really isn't reversible. And it's usually followed by some, uh, in a healthy grieving, by some sort of appropriate positive adaptation. We decide to move forward with our life in spite of the loss. And so I, I think it's real clear that, that grieving is okay. It's normal. And, and in fact, to not grieve can be very dangerous. Uh, some of the metaphors for unexpressed grief are these. First one is it's like toxic waste that gets in our, uh, gets in our, our, our groundwater system. And uh, another one is it's like the proverbial beach ball. When, you, uh, when you've had a significant loss and you don't acknowledge it, it's like you're holding it under the water, but be assured it will come up at some point in some time and in some way. And what I can almost guarantee you is it will come up in a time and a way that you would rather it not come up. And so it is most helpful to deal with it while it's there because if you don't deal with it now, it will deal with you later and you won't really get a whole lot of choice on when, that, when that's going to hit you and come about. So it's appropriate to grieve. It's, it would hurt you not to grieve. And then one of the things that we're learning from people's experience is actually when grieving is done uh, thoroughly and well, it actually can be um, what I call God's painful gift. Uh, some people call it a brutal gift. And that is when you go through grief of a loss, you emerge on the other side a different person, that there are changes that take place in your life. Do you remember Rabbi uh, Harold Kushner? Remember that book, um, When Bad Things Happen to Good People? You may remember his story. His young boy is born and has this terrible uh, disease where he's aging very rapidly and, of course, then dies. And Kushner talks about the effect of losing his son, and he says that since this, says the rabbi, I've become a more effective pastor. He said, I've become a more sensitive human being and a much more sympathetic counselor. And then he adds, and I'd give all that back in one second if I could have my son. But you don't get to have that choice. The only choice you have in grief is whether you're going to walk through it or not. And if you walk through it, it tends to, as uh, some people say, enlarge your soul. It tends to deepen you and change you as a person. People who have gone through uh, difficult grief and tragedy that I know and have done it well seem to have a clarity about them. Uh, there seems to be um, uh, just a, an added dimension to their life. And they seem to be more present in the present moment. And they seem to be more clear about what's really important. And I would suspect those gifts came to them through uh, this very difficult uh, struggle. And so it is appropriate and even helpful to grieve. And one of the phrases that sometimes used for grief is that you can be given 
uh, what they call creative hurt. And so I was just thumbing through the hymnal uh, not too long ago. And right off the bat, I found several songs that were written when a person had experienced significant loss. Sometimes when you come to a funeral, you will sing toward the end of the hymnal a hymn called the Hymn of Promise. Number 707 is written by a woman, Natalie Sleeth, whose husband was a theology professor in Denver. And he died after a battle with cancer. She wrote this hymn. In a response, uh, others of you will remember further back, a precious Lord, take my hand, a written Thomas A. Dorsey uh, after uh, a ship sunk and, and tragedy uh, and loss came to his life um, and, and as he lost family members. Or one we sing at Thanksgiving, now thank we all our God, which goes back several centuries. The man who wrote it, Martin Rinkert, writes it. Now, thank we all our God, after a space in less than a month when he's done 148 funerals because of a reoccurrence of the plague that has hit his community. There's a creativity uh, that sometimes comes in loss. And so Samuel grieves, and it's appropriate. For Samuel, it's appropriate for us. But truthfully, Samuel isn't real excited about moving through grief. And so in the story today, God has to say to him, how much longer are you going to grieve over Saul? And uh, it moves him along. Because the interesting thing, I didn't give you these verses, but earlier in the story, Saul basically says, uh, Samuel says to Saul before they part, he says, the Lord has taken uh, the kingship out of your hand and given it to someone else. You rejected God. Now God has rejected you. So Samuel already knows from God and knows in his heart that there's going to be a new king. And it's his job as a prophet to anoint that king, but he's not making any steps toward finding out who that new king is because he's, he's still stuck in his grief over Saul. And uh, apparently God decides at whatever point this is, it's long enough and it's time to move forward. How long is long enough to grieve? Well, I think, that, I, I think it's a misnomer to think we, we ever reach closure on significant losses. Um, at least that hadn't been my experience. Some guidelines that I've read from counselors are uh, when you actually have a loved one die, that it'll, it could take as long as two years to kind of get some equilibrium. If that person died in an accident, it could be three years. If it was a suicide, it could be four years. If it was a homicide, five years. If it was a child, probably never. Uh, those are some thoughts they have. But the fact of the matter is that our grieving will be different for each of us. But the fact is we need to begin to move through it. And that's what God encourages Samuel in the story this morning. And, um, and I, I would give you just a couple hints on moving through grief. The first one is I think one of the things you have to do to start really working with your grief is to be able to name it. Uh, whether you go to a counselor and talk with a counselor about it, whether you write it in a journal, but be able to say, I'm grieving, I have lost this. This was what this relationship was to me. This is what this person meant to me. Even if you move, this is what this house was to me. Uh, but, but name it. Uh, work, and that, I think, helps us get through that denial part. And then, in most of the reading I've done, especially from um, Christians and, and Jewish theologians, they will tell you that the next key point is when you quit asking why and you start asking, now what? Because... For most significant loss, we really won't get a complete answer to why. Uh, Notice Rabbi Kushner titled his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, not Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, because we really don't know. Well, he smoked 40 years. 
Other people smoke 40 years. They're still wandering around. Well, he drove his car too recklessly. There are people, you know, get out on the freeway. You'll find them. Uh, they're driving recklessly. They're still there. Well, he drank too much. We all know people who drink too much and can still function. It, you'll never find a complete satisfactory answer to why. And so the next thing is somehow to move from asking why and say, okay, this happened. Now what am I going to do? What is my response? And what I think uh, good uh, counselors will tell you is the defining moment in your life is not the loss that you have. The defining moment becomes your response to that loss. What are you going to do? Are you going to stay stuck in it? Are you going to move, begin to move forward at the appropriate time, whatever that might be for you? I mean, think of all the amazing things that happen in our world that came from somebody's loss. Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Susan G. Komen, Race for the Cure, all sorts of foundations that were started out of loss and suffering when people finally moved from the why did it happen to what am I going to do now in response. Uh, One of my favorite mentors, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs from the UK, says one thing you'll notice about the Jews is they've suffered a lot in their history, but they don't really talk a whole lot about it. Uh, They they seem to be talking rather about what's going to come from it. And so he gives some examples. About 600 years before Jesus, they're all carted off into Babylon, and then, and then they end up in the hands of the Persians. And their response is not to ask, why did it happen, though the Pharisees were among those who asked the question. Um, but their main response was, we can't get to the temple, we'll bring the temple to us, and they form synagogues. And then the temple gets destroyed by the Romans in the first century A.D., 40 years after Jesus' death. Jews are scattered everywhere, and their response is, we're going to devote ourselves, since we no longer have a a temple for sacrifices, we're going to devote ourselves to studying and learning God's word and reapplying all the passages that used to have to do with the temple and now see what they have to do with our life. And so their response was, they started all these rabbinical schools. And then if you fast forward, there were other tragedies, including the Crusades. But um, uh, as you as you fast forward, you get to the Holocaust and the response is this, not to talk quite so much about why the Holocaust, but you'll notice that a nation is formed in 1948 from it. And one of the things Sachs says is that for the Jews, despair is never the last word and that their faith, and I would argue by extension, our faith is always a principled rejection of despair in the favor of hope. And that happens when you move from why did this happen, which is not a bad question, it's just not answerable usually, to now that it's happened, what am I going to do? Um, And then uh, I would tell you, though, again, that it doesn't mean that you're through it, because uh, the analogy I like best for grief is it's like waves. And when you're first in grief, the waves come bigger and stronger and they hit harder. And then over time, the waves seem to come less frequency. They have less intensity. But you need to know that there will be that rogue wave that will come every once in a while. A few years ago, um, I was in the library uh, one day. It was more than a year after my brother, who at age 58, just dropped dead from a heart attack. And when he dropped dead... It was quite shocking uh, to all of us in the family, uh, but we began to work through it. But uh, there was some delay, and the news of his death got in the uh, magazine where he went to school at, at Rice University in Houston. And so his college girlfriend 
somehow Googled me, got my email address, and I'm sitting at Trinity Library working on a sermon one Thursday morning, open my phone, and there are pictures of my brother and his college girlfriend visiting my parents' house for Christmas. And I can tell you, I don't know what happened the rest of that day, but a sermon did not get written. And I don't know if I was coherent on Sunday morning or not, and you probably can't tell the difference anyway. Um, But I would tell you, that wave, you're never, it's never completely closed. But you can move forward. And what I'd like to say in closing is this. Our faith, perhaps, is the main thing that will move us from the why to the now what. And I'd like to suggest that our faith gives at least three wonderful gifts. The first thing is, I think our faith gives us a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. One of the things it is to be a Christian is to know that the world doesn't exist for us but that we exist for God and for the sake of other people. And so that moves, helps to move us out of our grief back into service. Uh, the great Carl Menninger from the Menninger Clinic used to say this, that if you're feeling especially despondent one day, he said, don't stay in bed, get up, get dressed, go outside your house, find someone who needs help and help them. There's that sense that our faith gives us that sort of purpose that's higher than we are. I think also our faith gives us a sense that we're part of a larger story. Um, that uh, even though something terrible has happened to us, that's not the end of everything. There is more yet that God will say. There's a larger story, a larger picture uh, that's that's going uh, on. And so uh, Gerald Sitzer has written a wonderful book called A Grace Disguised. He talks about losing his wife, his mother-in-law, and a daughter in a head-on wreck with a, a drunk uh, driver. Um, talks about this. He uses the phrase that when grief happens and there's terrible loss, he said, what you begin to find out is it's a very, very bad chapter in a very, very good book. And so when we, our faith perspective reminds us there's a larger story at play than whatever has happened in my life, no matter how terrible it is. There is more to be said. There is more that God will yet do. And then finally, I think our faith gives us what we have this morning, a group of people that we can share with together. You've heard the old proverb probably that a joy when you share it is doubled and a sorrow when you share it is cut in half. We are a group to double one another's celebrations, and to cut in half one another's sorrow. And that's part of what our faith gives us as we acknowledge that we're moving forward in a larger uh, story. Now, here's the rest of the story of Samuel. You may know it. Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, anoints a young boy named David to be king. David will grow up. Eventually, he will take a woman named Bathsheba as his wife. They will have a child who will have a child who will have a child who will have a child. And, and you go on, you go on, you go on. And you get down to Joseph and Mary who have a, who have a child who's our Messiah. Now, I'm wondering, is it too much to say? That had Samuel not overcome his grief and moved on to anoint David, that our Messiah might have been delayed, humanly speaking. And could I say that while I'm unwilling or unable to walk through the grief that I'm experiencing at this current moment, that I may also be delaying the Messiah's arrival in my own life.